Opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Radio at its best. You're listening to Rain. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network Rainbow Soul Channel. And it is Tuesday, April 19th, 2016, and I am broadcasting from Panama. Yep, the country of Panama. So we're having a little bit of rain here. It is a tropical rainforest after all, and the wind is a bit breezy, so that means the internet might be a bit shaky, but as always, we are being recorded. So, tonight's topic, clever disinformation. Yes, clever disinformation. So, this clever disinformation is designed to get you to submit to the medical industrial complex and sacrifice your most important possession. Yep, your life. So, that's what we're going to talk about tonight is examples of disinformation and they are getting more and more sophisticated. I came across this on the internet and I was appalled, actually shocked. But let's find out what disinformation is so everybody gets on the same page. Disinformation is false information deliberately and often covertly, that means secretly, spread as by the planting of rumors in order to influence public opinion, or obscure the truth. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to lead with the best example. This is a doozy. And this is a website, mentalfloss.com. And so they um, purport to give you amazing facts. They help you live smarter. Uh, They have videos, they have lists, they have quizzes. You can subscribe. And... um, all around, you know, upbeat, sophisticated site here. And what is their type of topic? 19 wildly dangerous home remedies from 100 years ago. So let's see if we can pick out the one that's not wildly dangerous. Okay, number one. 
without the luxury of over-the-counter decongestants, the early 20th century doctors advised an at-home method, which would be a syringe of boric acid and water in the nostrils several times a day, and frequently inhale a mixture of ammonia, iodine, and carbolic acid. Personally, I can vouch for the boric acid. Many eye drops, eye washes, have boric acid in them. So this is actually a common and very safe thing to spray into your nostrils, your eyeballs, or whatever. So this is actually still being used today. All right, to inhale ammonia, um, those are smelling salts. So take a whiff of that and it'll uh, wake you right up. And iodine, we know to be inhaled is pretty harmless, and carbolic acid. Now, when they say inhale, that means take a whiff of, that's my interpretation. So number one, I can say is probably at least harmless, possibly beneficial. Number two, if the previous method doesn't work, a spray of 4% solution of cocaine, this is for nasal congestion, direct application of a cotton ball soaked in an even stronger solution in the nostril was recommended for immediate relief. Now, those of you listening might think this is preposterous, but do you know that ear, nose, and throat doctors, otorhinolaryngologists, routinely give patients cocaine in their nose to get rid of congestion in the office without even telling the patient, by the way. So uh, this is actually not a previous method. This is a method that is still being used. So if you go to your ear, nose, and throat doctor, you're extremely congested, and he'd like to take a look in there with his special speculum because he gets paid more money if he uses a special speculum, and he can't see, he will soak a cotton ball with cocaine and literally thread it up into your nose. Okay, so this is definitely disinformation to suggest that this is a method that is no longer being done. Next, for a nosebleed, Find an old brown puffball, that's a mushroom, from the ground, remove the insides, and put it in the nostril. Let it remain for some time. In case you're curious what a puffball is, it is a kind of fungus. Again, fungus sounds pretty ominous, but it's a mushroom, like portobello or button mushroom. I can't comment on this one. I haven't tried it. I don't have any knowledge of this. But, again... Clever disinformation makes it sound pretty ominous. Next, and watch for the one. There's, there's one in here that's going to be really uh, interesting to you. No puffballs? That's okay. You can use, for a nosebleed, you can raise the arms above the head, applying ice or cold cloths to the neck or spine. In the extreme cases, ice may be applied to the scrotum or breast while simultaneously syringing warm salt water into the nostrils. This is very interesting and certainly harmless. And you certainly can't um, put it in the category of wildly dangerous. I mean, putting salt water up your nostrils and ice packs on other parts of your body is definitely not wildly dangerous. So this is obviously misinformation. Maybe laughable, but not dangerous. Here's a splendid liniment for a sore throat. Olive oil, got it. Ammonia, got it. Turpentine. One egg, shake until the mixture forms an emulsion, apply to the neck and throat until a blister forms, wipe clean, and apply cold cream. Now, 
not to defend this, but what they're trying to do is actually draw the infection out of the throat. How dangerous is this? It sounds pretty harmless to me. The danger, if any, actually, might be the break in the skin might get infected, but that's highly unlikely uh, with the turpentine. But it gets a little closer to home here. Suppose blistering your neck doesn't relieve your sore throat. Well, cocaine, of course. Mix it with warm water, some olive oil, and paint it onto the throat. Or sucking on a cocaine lozenge before eating will be found very useful. And actually, cocaine does numb. It is, uh, that is one of its uh, characteristics. So this particular uh, remedy, which is to mix cocaine with warm water and olive oil and paint on the throat, would be expected to remedy a sore throat. And no, it's not wildly dangerous. All right, maybe somewhat illegal nowadays, but it's not dangerous. Next, croup can be scary. That means a baby with a cough, especially for first time parents. Back in 1900 and you found your baby coughing, tried into treatment would be a spoonful of sugar. Not scary at all. But before you give it to kiddo, let's put a few drops of kerosene on it. The idea, apparently, is to induce vomiting, which it probably does. Actually, this is totally erroneous. And using kerosene and sugar is something still done today. It's actually quite effective. A piece of disinformation. Remember, the name of this site is mentalfloss.com. And they purport to be proponents of amazing facts, helping people live smarter. Hmm. I wonder who's funding this site. All right, it gets better. For asthma, inhale chloroform. Assuming chloroform isn't readily available, other options include smoking saltpeter. Now, this is a salt that you use to cure meat. Now, 100 years ago, people cured their own meat at home. So this is something that they would have had at home or in the house. The smoke of burning coffee or cigarettes containing thorn apple, which is an herb. Uh, so these are uh, asthma cures, and while one might laugh at them, um, certainly the medical remedies that are in use nowadays are totally ineffective. So I don't imagine that these things are deadly, but uh, certainly one can question their effectiveness. But again, I had no experience. But number nine, dum -da -dum, tapeworms giving you grief? Two doses of the following mixture was considered an excellent remedy. Castor oil, half an ounce, and turpentine, 15 drops. Alternately, you can mix the previous two items with a cup of milk. Well, there's no indication that this makes it better. And so, of course, uh, turpentine is a classic remedy for tapeworms. It was used for tapeworms in animals, livestock, and um, for humans as well. Next, number 10. If you find you're losing some hair, a quick and easy fix, make some sage tea. Sage is happen to be a very powerful uh, antibiotic. Now mix with an equal part of whiskey, which is an astringent for the scalp. Now take a sip, then add a dash of quinine. Quinine is, again, another uh, antiparasite, and this one gets rid of uh, malaria and many uh, viruses and spirochetes. To the cup and spray, paint, or rinse over the scalp as often as needed at least twice a day. Now, quinine to the scalp, whiskey to the scalp, 
and sage seeds of scalp is certainly harmless. Again, disinformation. Wildly dangerous home remedies, they say. So we're getting some things that might seem silly or ridiculous, but uh, certainly not dangerous. Now, slightly stronger hair loss uh, method is to rub almond oil, rosemary, wine, distilled water, and mercury bichloride into the scalp every morning until your hair grows back or unexplained death, whichever comes first. And so we can all pretty much agree that mercury might be hazardous. So we've got one here at number 11 that's clearly hazardous. For dry chapped skin, spoon a few ounces of sour cream into a flannel cloth. Tie it up, bury it in soil overnight. Dig the cloth up mid-morning and apply the enriched sour cream to your hands, knees, heels, and elbows as needed. Obviously, an attempt at a probiotic. Again, not wildly dangerous. Eczema is number 13. Doesn't seem to be a universally effective treatment. Still, we do not recommend trying out the following do-it-yourself wash formula. So half an ounce of laudanum, which is uh, lead. Soak into gauze strips and apply to afflicted parts. So that might be a bit hazardous. Lice are persistent and it may take several treatments to get rid of them. One treatment, pure kerosene. Again, watch for the blistering and make sure you follow up with some cold cream. 24 hours later when you shampoo it out. Got a problem with bodily lice? Get blue ointment, 20% mercury. But can, I can agree that that's hazardous. Ringworm, highly contagious, nothing to mess around with. Mix gunpowder, vinegar, and apply it. Again, sounds harmless to me. Anyone with acne can tell you it's difficult to treat. That's why there's so many products available. In other words, they're ineffective. But get a mixture of lard, ground cannabis, and apply it. And so this actually can be expected to be pretty effective. Counter-effective and illegal in most states. Hmm. Uh, cannabis applied topically would be very effective actually for skin problems. Got a sunburn? Mix together equal parts cornstarch and oat flour, then a dram of lead carbonate and dust it wherever. And so obviously uh, we now know, we consider anyway nowadays that lead is, is just totally dangerous. And for canker sores, there may be recommended treatments that have been proven effective, but brave and no longer alive people use tomato juice, half a lemon held against the area, Rinses of baking soda, boric acid, and vinegar. Or, if you're feeling especially bold, a piece of raw chicken skin can be applied and left until no longer painful. Now, just to reiterate, none of these are healthy or advisable. Please don't put puff balls in your nose or lead on your scalp. And so what they've done is they've gone to great length and took a whole page here to make sure to insert something about castor oil and turpentine. I have to say I'm flattered, and this is definitely a sign that somebody's watching. Or maybe that too many people are using turpentine and avoiding uh, the medical acts. So what other clever disinformation do we have?
I tell you, it's endless. So for my next example, I'm going to take a, a look at uh, some natural healing information again. I'm on a few of these lists, so every now and then it just gets to be too much, so I have to say something. So this person is criticizing uh, health policies. And so see if you can figure out the disinformation here. So he says, on my way home from Trader Joe's last night, I was listening to my pal, and he played a pretty shocking clip from a Chelsea Clinton speech in Utah. Apparently, Chelsea said that her mother, that'd be Hillary, believes we should extend Affordable Care Act to people who are living and working here regardless of immigration status, regardless of citizenship status. To put it simply, Hillary thinks we should let illegal immigrants enroll in Obamacare. So how does that work exactly? Well, according to one report, so many millions of dollars in Obamacare subsidies have already been given to 470,000 people who could not prove American citizenship. That's $750 million of taxpayer money that's going to people who aren't even legally allowed to be here. And who's going to pay for all this? I can tell you right now who's going to get stuck with the bill. You and me. And then it goes on and on and on. So obviously, this is a totally misapprehension of Obamacare. Obamacare is simply an illegal head tax. And why shouldn't we subject all of the illegal aliens to this illegal head tax? I believe that if we extend Obamacare to every single illegal alien, they will literally flee back across the border. This is the best thing we could do to protect our country, would be to subject our illegal aliens, we'll call them visitors, to the very same laws that citizens are subject to. Um, the way Obamacare works is everyone is obligated to pay into health insurance. And this so-called subsidy just means that you pay less, but you still pay. And so what you have then is you'll have an illegal alien who might be earning, let's just throw a number out there, um, $2,000 a month, let's just say, earning $2,000 a month. So now, instead of just paying Social Security tax, living frugally and sending the rest of it back home, he now has to take a portion and spend it on health insurance or spend it on the penalty for being uninsured. So this literally drastically decreases the profitability of being in the United States. It totally takes a profit out of being an illegal alien. And the more money the illegal alien makes, the bigger the bite. And so literally it creates a situation for the illegal aliens where they absolutely cannot economically get ahead. Personally, I am totally in favor of extending Obamacare to the illegal aliens. Maybe that will help get it repealed. But the disinformation here is it positions healthcare as something desirable. And it positions Obamacare as a privilege that Americans should keep to themselves and not share. And so this is clever disinformation that gets the reader to buy into the value of healthcare and the value of Obamacare. 
Obamacare health care is not valuable, and Obamacare is even worse because it's not even health care. It's just an obligation to pay and get nothing in return. So when you sign someone up for Obamacare, all you're doing is giving them an obligation to pay. You're committing them to what amounts to a head tax. Now, if we're talking about Hispanic illegal aliens, let's talk about Hispanic illegal aliens. Hispanic illegal aliens live on average seven years longer than Americans because they don't have access to health care. So if you give them Obamacare, I mean, it's like a friggin' secret weapon. Again, propaganda. All right. So the same person, another same health news guy, talks about statin drugs. Okay. So see if you can find the disinformation here. And again, disinformation is very subtle and covert. And so what we're going to end up here is a diatribe against statins that ends up telling you to take statins. So I'm just going to tell you up front so you can uh, pick it out easily. Statin drugs may be one of the biggest cons of our lifetime. I know, it's a big statement, so let me explain. When you dig into the research, you realize that only in a small number of cases do they actually provide any benefit. For example, middle-aged men who already have had at least one heart attack. And in many cases, they don't help at all. For example, in women. And that doesn't even address the fact that in a few small diet changes could give you better results in three weeks than statins ever could. But the real reason behind why we prescribe so many statins today is actually quite scary. Let me explain. It used to be the gold standard for saying someone had high cholesterol was 300, and the number went down to 240. And a few years later, the number went down to 200. After another panel of experts recommended the number be lowered again. You might think that when these recommended numbers got changed, that this is a big event. That thousands of doctors and specialists weighed in on the issue. Nope. The last round of changes, a panel of nine experts made that decision. Problem? Eight out of nine were paid consultants for drug companies that sell cholesterol-lowering drugs. Okay, so now the logic appears to be saying, hey, you know what? They're manufacturing disease by just changing the definition of the disease to include more and more healthy people. And you're saying, uh-huh, uh-huh. Then these experts were paid consultants for drug companies, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he says, at the very least, most people would admit that there is a slight conflict of interest here. So you're still, still with you. How can you really be impartial on something like this when you're getting paid by these companies? So, data shows lowering the cholesterol treatment numbers created a possible 600 million new customers for these companies in the U.S. alone. And that still doesn't account for the fact that in most cases, statin drugs don't actually help you live any longer. They might lower your cholesterol by 15 points, but your risk of dying from a stroke or heart attack does not change at all. If all it does is lower your cholesterol, but you still have the same chance of dying, and what's the point? That's why I think statins are one of the biggest cons in modern medicine. Okay, so, so far, it's making sense. Then he says, and that's why I think you should always try a few simple diet changes before ever going on statins. What? So that's my two cents. 
two cents. It was negative $2,000 is what it was. Why should you try anything if the disease is imaginary and created by a committee meeting and lowering a number from 300 to 240 to 200? The sensible, obvious thing here is to realize, one, there is no disease. These numbers are just being changed in order to sell drugs. And so this person who feels cholesterol drugs are a con says, just try some diet changes, simple ones, before you go on the statins. Why go on them at all? Again, clever disinformation to get you to part with your most valuable asset, your life. All right, here's some good disinformation. This is the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Recording Service. This is a place where they record adverse reactions to vaccines. To give you a little bit of uh, background here, when I was practicing medicine, we were told that routinely babies would get swelling at the side, fever, uh, hysterical crying, all these things are normal. Don't worry about it. Just from the vaccines. Okay. So this is what the government says. This is And they say, more than 10 million vaccines per year are given to children less than one year old. All right. I got it. Usually between two and six months of age. Okay. I got it. At this age, infants are at greatest risk for certain medical adverse events, including high fevers, seizures, and sudden infant death syndrome. Some infants will experience those medical events shortly after a vaccination. By coincidence. By coincidence. These coincidences make it difficult to know whether a particular adverse event resulted from a medical condition or from a vaccination. Yes. Now, of course these events occur between two and six months of age because that's when vaccines are given. They don't give most babies vaccines before two months of age. And so most babies end up getting their first fever uh, around two months of age. And so this is clever disinformation because it takes what's a very common, obvious event, presents it to the public as a coincidence. Even doctors are told that the vaccines cause, uh, you know, high fevers. All right, another one. This is is really uh, something that's sweeping the internet right now. Many of you may be following the Truth About Cancer series. I'm actually following it myself. When I have time, I tune in and watch an episode. It's actually very interesting. So, one of the people uh, involved in this, Sayer G., uh, who has a website called Green Med Info, says, oops, it wasn't cancer after all, admits the Nashville Cancer Institute. So this is the same uh, thing that we mentioned last week, which was about the papillary cancer being reclassified as, no, not cancer. And so what does Sayer G. say that you should do about this? So this is after decades of wrongful cancer diagnosis and treatments, in millions harmed, the National Cancer Institute and high-end journals like a journal of the American Medical Association finally admit they were wrong all along. And so many people were subsequently treated for cancer they did not have with violent procedures and treatments 
And they're now being told, oops, we got that wrong. You never had cancer after all. And so what he is recommending, of course, is that natural methods be used to treat uh, cancer. And so if you don't acknowledge or if you don't challenge the primary diagnosis, then you'll never reveal the true truth about cancer, which is that what is that most of the times when people get a cancer diagnosis, they have nothing more than a pimple. I do mean that literally a pimple. And that is what they're calling this, an epithelial harmless growth, harmless growth of, growth of epithelial origin. Literally, it's a harmless growth on the skin. So all of these cancers, let me just go down the list here. They have a very good list. Uh, many breast cancers, all prostate cancers, thyroid cancers, even colon cancers, uh, have many of these found by screening have zero mortality. And so they take a disease with zero death rate and administer um, drugs that have do have a death rate. So of course, uh, the disinformation here is if you don't have cancer, then why treat it naturally or otherwise? Yeah, so if you don't have cancer, then there's no need to result to a natural therapy for cancer because you don't have it. It's equally dishonest to treat a person who doesn't have cancer for cancer, whether it's a natural treatment or a conventional medical treatment. Again, clever misinformation, or I should say disinformation. Okay. Oh, I like this one. Okay. As many of you know, if you've been listening to my shows for a while, I love the AHRQ. Yes. AHRQ, and this is the um, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. It's a division of the federal government, and they're in charge in, of monitoring all the death, destruction, and harm that the medical industrial complex does, and this is what they say. It says, questions to ask your doctor. And so let's see if you can find the disinformation in these questions. And so they say to the patient, unsuspecting patient, a simple question can help you feel better, let you take better care of yourself, or save your life. The questions below can get you started. This is what to ask your doctor. What is this test for? How many times have you done this procedure? When will I get the results? Why do I need this treatment? Are there any alternatives? Are the possible, what are the possible complications? Which hospital is best for my needs? How do you spell the name of that drug? Are there any side effects? Will this medicine interact with medicines that I'm already taking? And so this is an obvious attempt at manipulation, disinformation, redirecting the patient's attention away from the real issue, which is, what the heck's going on here? Is it going to help me? And so here's some missing questions. You can, I'm sure, make up a few of your own. One, 
what happened to the last three patients who said yes to this? Would you have this procedure if you were in my situation? What will happen if I wait 30 days? How oh, that for some questions. But, nope, nope, nope. No question of your doctor that even suggests any hesitancy to go along and be obedient and do what you're told. And they even have the nerve, and I think it's a lot of nerve, to go so far as to say, try our question builder. We'll build more questions for you in case you have nothing better to do with your time. Obviously, their questions are not going to get to the meat of the matter, which is, should you or should you not do what the doctor's recommending? I mean, that's the acid. I mean, that's the question. All this other stuff is just, uh, you know, irrelevant chit-chat. Okay. Oh, this is my favorite. Now, a lot of you know that there is a problem afoot. There is a Zika virus. Oh, man, it was a problem three months ago. Then somehow it died down. I guess the mosquitoes went on vacation. Now... It's a problem, man. It is all the rage. It is so bad that the CDC has stepped in and taken a position. Yes, sir, Bob. They have stepped in and they say that something has got to be done. Yes, something has got to be done. And by golly, I guess they're going to help us do it. So they start off, this is what your doctor's getting in this, in this box. The Zika infection rate in the United States is low among asymptomatic, that means people without symptoms, who are, they say, potentially exposed, we'll just say exposed. In other words, these people who go to endemic places um, like the Caribbean or Central America. Okay, I happen to live here in, they're now trying to convince us this is Zika country, although nobody's sick, everyone's doing pretty well here. So... Bottom line is the CDC is, re is recommending um, that all pregnant women get screened. So overall, relatively few persons receiving testing for Zika virus at CDC had confirmed Zika virus infection. And the proportion of confirmed Zika infection was higher among persons who reported at least one Zika virus associated symptom, basically the flu, than among persons with other symptoms only or asymptomatic persons. They stress that these results reflect the current situation in the U.S. and District of Columbia with most... Hi, this is Dr. Daniels, uh, and welcome back to Healing with Dr. Daniels. We had a little blackout, but we're back on the line. So, we're talking about Zika. This is the latest in disinformation. And so, it's important to understand the headline. Headline is, this is a very uh, important headline, is that Zika infection rate is low among asymptomatic potentially exposed, but it's a serious matter and we should not forget it. And so uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention continues to recommend asymptomatic pregnant women within 12 weeks of potential exposure be tested for the virus. Given the potential for adverse pregnancy, and infant outcomes associated with infection. Additionally, individuals with potential exposure to the virus who show signs and symptoms consistent with Zika virus disease should be tested. And the recommendations are based on a review of Zika virus testing infection patterns in the United States, 
and they have determined that Zika does indeed cause microcephaly. Yes, Zika causes microcephaly. No doubt about it. Who am I to question? I would never think of doing so. However, I would think of doing some calculations. So, um, follow me on this one. It's a little bit of math here. Actually, it's a lot of math. So what they did was they tested 3,335 pregnant women. In that 3,335 pregnant women, they found that infection with the virus was confirmed in 18 of them. Yes, 18 of them. So that's quite a bit less than 1%. It's about a third of a percent. And so basically what that means is the chances of a pregnant woman who's been exposed to Zika of being of testing positive for Zika is three in one thousand. All right. So now fast forward to another article that tells us they know Zika causes microcephaly in between one percent and twenty-nine percent of those infected. So we have follow this one now. Three per thousand are infected. Of the three per thousand that are infected, one percent will give birth to babies with microcephaly. So that's basically three per hundred thousand. So if you take a bunch of pregnant ladies, expose them to Zika, three per hundred thousand are gonna have a microcephalic baby. All right, as we always like to compare apples and apples, the uh, birth defect statistics are per 10,000 births. So if it's three per 100,000, it's 0.3 per 10,000. So 0.3 per 10,000, and then it's up to 29%, so it's 29 times the three. So 0.3 per 10,000 to as many as 8.7 per 10,000 of these pregnant ladies will have a microcephalic baby. And I know this is so because the CDC says so, so we're going to take their word for this. But what else does the CDC say? Well, the CDC tells us what the normal frequency of microcephaly in the United States is. Yep, hold on to your seat. Don't fall out of your chair. It's 2 per 10,000 births to as high as 12 per 10,000 births. So if you have been exposed to the Zika virus, your chances of having a microcephalic baby are less than if you've not been exposed to the Zika virus. Now, this does not mean that the Zika virus does not cause microcephaly. What it may mean is that your average woman living in the United States is exposed to something, not Zika, but something that causes a heck of a lot of microcephaly. And that it's preferable to be exposed, apparently, to Zika because your child will have a smaller chance of having microcephaly. Yes, that's right. Now, what is the recommendation for these women is don't get pregnant. Don't get pregnant if you go to an area that has Zika virus. Don't get pregnant if you go to an area with those awful mosquitoes. So if stopping all pregnancies is reasonable to prevent a birth defect, microcephaly, that happens 0.3 times in 10,000 live births, then all reproduction in the United States 
of human beings should stop right now because the risk of a pregnant woman who has never been exposed to Zika having a baby with microcephaly is already greater than the risk of Zika exposure for which not getting pregnant, not having any babies is the recommended uh, course of action. So, like I said, according to these numbers, having Zika exposure may be protective for American pregnant women, since having Zika exposure causes microcephaly at a lower rate than not having Zika exposure. That's it. I heard it here, and these are the CDC's own figures. Yes, it's their own figures. Now, if you go other places on the internet, they'll say, oh, those CDC figures are saying as a cause and effect link between Zika and microcephaly, and I know those figures are bogus. Hey, why don't you go look at the numbers, crunch the numbers, and then just do that. But I'm not going to question their conclusion. All I'm going to say is, if Zika causes microcephaly, then it causes a lot less microcephaly than whatever else American women are doing. And so it seems to me, according to the CDC's own numbers, that being exposed to Zika is a heck of a lot safer than not being exposed to Zika if microcephaly is what you're concerned about. So, again, disinformation. What's the information? That if you're exposed to Zika, you should not reproduce, or you should allow yourself to be tested with needles and poked and prodded. Ugh, utter nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Why? Because your chances of having a defective baby if you've been exposed to Zika is a lot less. Now, there's another supposition here, right? There's all kinds of things. So what kind of lady is able to fly around the world while she's pregnant? Well, a lady who has a few more nickels than the ones that decide to stay home. So it might be a confounding variable that we're talking about women who are more um, prosperous, who are slightly wealthier, maybe who have more money to spend on food or feeding themselves during their pregnancy, or maybe these women are Hispanic. Hispanic women visiting their Hispanic relatives in these Hispanic countries. What's the relevance here? Again, the Hispanic paradox. So Hispanics who uh, are not born in the U.S., but who live in the U.S., either as citizens or whatever their status, have tremendously better health. Why? They don't speak the language, so they don't get the propaganda, they don't have health insurance, and they don't get health care. So there you have it. Now, the final... Uh, piece here of disinformation. I love this one. Sepsis, those of you who don't know, sepsis is a dangerous infection, often deadly, occurs in hospitals. All right. So sepsis mortality rates depend on data source used, CDC says. Wait, wait, wait. If the number of people who drop dead depends on which source I'm using, then that would suggest that the sources might not be reliable. Yes, the sources might not be reliable. <laughs> so let's see what they say about sepsis. As I tell you, this is so bizarre. I mean, you gotta, you gotta quote this because 
it's tough to believe that some adult who are competent to conduct legal business wrote this stuff. But here's what they say. Um, Number of sepsis-related deaths increased 31% from 139,000 to 182,000 from 1999 to 2014. That's a lot of deaths. These are people who died in the hospital of infections despite or because of antibiotics. And so here is what they found. They found that if they took a look at the death certificate data, they found a much lower frequency of sepsis as a cause of death. So the authors emphasize that the annual range of sepsis-related death based on administrative claims data, this means information hospitals submit to insurance companies trying to get paid, and there, in this case, they have to present the patient as being extremely ill, to get, as ill as possible, to get the maximum amount of reimbursement. So the frequency of sepsis, if you look at this data, is 15% to 140% higher than that obtained using death certificate data. So the death certificate data is what the family looks at when they decide whether or not to sue, or what they look at when they decide whether or not the doctor is doing the right thing. So the corresponding period from 2004 to 2009, so now um, this gives a different number. So instead of uh, 182,000, it's 381,000 deaths. Ouch, that's a lot of death. (sighs) A lot of death. So this is clearly disinformation to say that the sepsis death rates depend on whether the same hospital is filing an insurance claim to get money or whether the same hospital is issuing a certificate that the family might see. And so that hospital must be, well, dishonest. Yeah, dishonest, yeah. And so we have here, not only is the hospital dishonest, but in reporting it is another layer of dishonesty, of disinformation, to get you to take your life and put it in the hands of institutions that are killing 381,000 people over a five-year period. This is by their own admission. This is, you know, these are confessions, not accusations. All right. So, as you guys know, I've been concerned about the 880,000 Americans every year that die at the hands of the medical-industrial complex. And so I'm actually uh, doing a program this weekend in Panama teaching people to become the healers in their home. Yes, teaching them everything I know so they can go forth, heal themselves and their family. And that is important. That is the only way to save yourself. Going to the medical industrial complex, reading the fine print, talking to your doctor. They even give you questions to ask your doctor to make sure that you never ask anything important. This is not one that you can win. The only way to get her done is to do it yourself. So shoot Shaoli an email and say, hey, you want to know more? We have uh, five spaces left.
Okay, so questions. Let's take a look at the chat room. If you're on the line, you can click your button. There's got to be one there. Maybe it's number one, I think. But summary is disinformation. Don't believe the hype. And get out your pencil. Make sure it's a sharp one. And do your own calculations with available data. And always look for a numerator and a denominator. What percent of what? And you'll get there. Uh, it's like the um, CDC. They said, yep, Zika causes microcephaly. Less microcephaly than people who don't have Zika, but it causes it. So, hey, we'll go with their number. But it's a lot safer to have Zika than not. Okay, we have a question here. Hi, your name and your question? Okay, I guess we missed that one. Okay, let's take a look at the chat room. <laughs> okay. Dr. Daniels, are inconvenient records destroyed or compromised in order to hush up whistleblowers? They don't even have to do that. The federal government has passed a law called PSO, Patient Safety Organization, saying that whenever the hospital believes a mistake for which it can be held legally liable has occurred, they can take that patient's record and put it in a file drawer called 90 seconds. PSO, Patient Safety Organization, and they are not required to disclose that record under legal subpoena or anything else. And should any employee mention information in that record to the family or next of kin or the patient if he's still alive, then that employee can be prosecuted. And that's actually a law. Look it up. Capital P, capital S, capital O, Patient Safety Organization. <laughs> I had to tell you what seconds. I have a brother who's diabetic. And so he's been working very hard to control his diabetes, of course, aiming at the lethal targets that his doctor set for him. And so he called me up one night to chit-chat about how hard he was working on this. I said, Matthew, you're going to end up with dead-in-bed syndrome. You're going to find you dead in bed in the morning, and it'll be from your diabetes tight control. So I talked to him again about six months later. He said, you know, I looked up that dead in bed thing. I thought you were pulling my leg, but then I found out you were telling the truth. <laughs> this stuff is so outrageous, you don't even have to make it up. Don't even have to make it up. Okay. All right. I'd love to see... If they keep statistics on how many people are reported to have contracted Vira who are of color versus those who are Caucasian. Of course, they always keep stats by race and they release them whenever it's politically expedient. And of course, these stats have nothing to do with race, but everything to do with just cultural practices. Okay. <laughs> cholesterol, which is a target of statin therapy, happens to be vital to all membranes for their proper functioning. What do you think about that, Dr. Daniels? Well, I think it's no accident. I think that's why cholesterol was targeted, um, to get people to willingly be an agent in their own destruction, to get people to look at something which is a sign of health, some of a healthy immune system doing what it's supposed to, 
and get them to actually work to destroy their own immune system. And this is actually working very well. Nakadana says, vitamin C help energy levels? Yes, it can help energy levels. Um, works on the level of the um, mitochondria. Best way to get vitamin C, of course, best way to get any vitamin is in your food. And the best way to get it depends, of course, on, uh, you know, where you live and what kind of foods are available. So, uh, you know, roses, rosehip, rosehip tea, um, you know, lemons have vitamin C in them. Here where I live in Panama, uh, passion fruit's very high in vitamin C. So it just really depends on where you live, what would be the, be the better source. <laughs> okay, Dr. Daniels, could the presidential candidates actually be targeting immigrants for Obamacare to help kill them? Possibly, but I think, um, you know, you have to realize that um, political candidates are not necessarily acting out of uh, free will. And you also have to realize that every politician uh, needs more tax revenue. The more tax revenue they have, the more power they can exercise. And making immigrants subject to the Obamacare would simply be an awesome influx in uh, tax revenue. And that's really what was going on. But this person, uh, the candidate, is playing on people's envy, anger, um, hatred towards uh, another race, or the feeling that, that somehow an, someone else has an advantage over them or is exploiting them. So rather than just looking at the facts of the case, that Obamacare is not good for anybody, if you got it free, it's still a bad deal because, you know, it's going to uh, kill you. And that's, I believe, the cause of why whites between the age of 45 and 54 are dying in record numbers is because they're uh, a group of people who are employed and who are cooperating with Obamacare and uh, <clears throat> getting insurance and drugs and seeing doctors more often. Dr. Daniels, the song quality day was not very good. What can we do? Um, I have a separate recording on my end, which is actually very good quality, so we'll, we'll be posting that tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, Rick James says cocaine is one hell of a drug. Well, you know, cocaine used to be over-the-counter, and it used to be the main ingredient in Coca-Cola. That's where Coca-Cola got its name from. Dr. Daniels, is boric acid just borax, like 20 milkshake borax? Yes, it is. So it's simply um, the borax, and you add water to it, and that gives you uh, boric acid. Okay, and that is it for today. We had a little interruption here, but we picked right back up. And we will have a high-quality recording ready for you, I believe, tomorrow. Okay, thank you very much, and as always, think happens.
using Blog Talk Radio. Goodbye.